the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. 1K Retired. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. With me in studio is my wife, Alexandra. Welcome, Alexandra. Welcome. Thank you all for joining us this morning or afternoon. We're glad you're with mm-hmm. us today. I remember when I was in college, after my junior year, I was offered an intern pastorship for the summer. The senior pastor was going out of town. He had some health issues, and so I was offered the position. And I readily accepted it. I was majoring in theology in the undergraduate school. So off I went to be a pastor for three months. Those were the longest, most uncomfortable three months I think I've ever spent in my life. I got there and really didn't know what a pastor was supposed to do. How do I schedule my day? What do I do with my time? Well, I visited the families in their homes. I preached on the weekends. I led the prayer meeting. What do I do the rest of the time? I washed my car and polished it. I think I did that every week. I had no idea what I was supposed to be doing as a pastor. I went off to seminary, and in seminary, there was a question being asked that seemed not to have an answer. The question was, what is a pastor supposed to be doing? And of course, one of the answers was, don't worry about it. You'll be so busy, you will never have time to ask that question. But finally, one day, I sat down with one of my senior professors at seminary, and I said to him, please help me understand. I'll be graduating soon from seminary, and I'll be taking a church pastorate. What am I supposed to do there? He looked at me with his eyes very intent and he said to me, Ray, I don't know what a pastor is supposed to do. Well, I heard many answers at seminary about what a pastor was supposed to do. I heard the answer that he's supposed to be a coach. I heard that he was supposed to be a, a CEO a manager. I heard that the pastor was supposed to be the program developer and manager. None of these answers satisfied my heart. I finally had my first church district, three churches spread over 200 miles, and frankly, I was utterly bored. I didn't know what a pastor was supposed to do. And no one had ever been clear about it. What was my schedule supposed to be? What were my tasks? What were my duties? Well, I knew some of them. You lead the public worship services. You do a a prayer meeting in each of the churches. But what beyond that is a pastor supposed to do? 
Well, that question really uncovers what I'll call an invisible elephant in the church today. And that's what we'd like to talk about with you. The issue is that when I would read the scriptures, I found there was no similarity between what I read there and the way the church was actually functioning in reality. And yes, most pastors become program managers and developers, and they spend their time running programs. That did not satisfy my heart or my soul. I needed something much more than that. So part of my journey has been earnestly seeking to know how does a pastor use his time? And members would say to me, oh, pastor, I don't want to interrupt you. I know you're so very busy. I'd say, no, I'm not busy at all. And they'd look at me and be shocked. Well, pastor, aren't you doing your job? Well, what's my job? And they would look at me blankly like, what, you don't know what your job is? We don't know what your job is either. So why did you decide to become a pastor? I became a pastor for only one reason. I wanted to win people to Jesus. I wanted souls to be won. I wanted lives to be changed. But I got there and discovered I had no power to do these things. And you didn't think that the program management would do that? It didn't do it. I managed many programs. And some were extremely successful. And everybody said, wow, we have a wonderful pastor. Look at what's happening to the church. Wrong. I was bored out of my gourd. It was deadsville. And I've pastored in mega churches and small country churches. I found the same thing in both places. So we're going to read a large portion of scripture for you. And we're going to say some things that I think will be very shocking to you. But we are not willing to play the church game. We are earnestly desiring to understand from the word of God, from Jesus himself, what is the work of a pastor? What is the work of of every person who says, I will follow Jesus. I will be born from above. What is your work? Well, let's read this portion of scripture. Yes, so I'll begin in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, and read through Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. And then we'll hone in and talk about it but first I'm going to read the whole passage so that you can understand the context. So this is Matthew 9, verse 35. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted, and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. 
Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits, to cast them out, and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these, the first Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. Provide neither gold, nor silver, nor brass in your purses, nor scrip for your journey, neither two coats, shoes, or staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. And into whatsoever city or town you shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and there stay until you leave. And when you come into a house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child. And the children shall rise up against their parents, and cause them to be put to death. And you shall be hated of all nation, of all men, for my name's sake. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man come. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple to be as his master, and the servant as his lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light, and what you hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, 
and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Whosoever, therefore, shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water, only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. And it came to pass, when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now, as we approach understanding what you've just heard read to you, please, we're not going to speak about general principles and say, okay, how can we apply these to our lives now in the 21st century? No, let's not play games with the Word of God. Let's come directly and ask the question, is this teaching of Jesus reflective of our reality? Or do we establish our 21st century American reality and then try to garner principles out of the scripture that can make our life more productive. I'm not interested in doing that. So let's look at the actual teaching of what Jesus has said and done. And based on that, identify what our work needs to be today. So he begins in verse 35. This is John 9, 35. Matthew 9. I'm sorry, Matthew 9, 35. Jesus is going through all of the towns and the villages, and he has his disciples with him. He is preaching the good news of the kingdom, and specifically the good news of the kingdom we discover in Matthew, the fourth chapter Verse 17 is this. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So, Jesus is now going out to the villages. He is preaching a message of repentance. And he's announcing 
that the kingdom of heaven or the divine authority of God is now going to come and rule over them. A part of what he's doing then, in addition to preaching and teaching about this kingdom that has now come and calling men and women to repent, is he now is also healing every disease and sickness that they may have. He saw the crowds. He had compassion on them. He saw the lost. He saw those who were dejected, who were sheep without a shepherd. And it says he had compassion on them. So what's happening is Jesus is teaching, preaching, and healing, but he's only one person and he can only do so much. So he's looking around and he's seeing multitudes of people who he's not able to reach. And that inspires this feeling of compassion. And it's worth mentioning here that these aren't careless sinners who were wandering around. These are multitudes who were coming to Jesus but they lacked adequate attention. So what is Jesus' solution? Well, his solution is, it's found in verse 37. This is Matthew nine thirty-seven. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Meaning, look at the multitudes. They need help. But the workers are few. In other words, he's working by himself. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So he's saying, look, I can't do this alone. The crowds are too large. I need help. Ask the Lord of the harvest. To send out workers. Now, chapter 10 begins, but there should not be this artificial drawing of a line between chapter 9 and chapter 10. Matthew did not put that division in the scriptures. These divisions were added much later. Chapter 10, he begins, he called his 12 disciples to him. And he gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. So literally, Alexandra, he was calling his disciples to do exactly what he was doing. Yes, and this is in response to the prayer, chapter 9, verse 38, and then the very next verse is chapter 10, verse 1. So Jesus calling his disciples to do what he has been doing is a direct response to Jesus saying, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers. So Jesus prays this, and then he actually sends out the laborers. And they do. They do everything that Jesus has been doing. So he names the disciples. And these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go to the lost go to the lost sheep of Israel and as you go preach this message the kingdom of heaven is near that is the divine authority of God is coming upon you repent 
So their first task is to call men to repent of their sin, to confront the darkness. He's saying, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have been given, freely receive. So, literally, the disciples are to go out and perform the same miracles that Jesus is performing. There is no restriction on them except that they remain within the boundaries of Israel. Why? Well, because Pentecost has not come yet. They would be overwhelmed. And Jesus is asking for laborers in the harvest field where he is working. And he is working in Israel. And so he has asked for these workers to be sent to be qualified to do the same work he is doing. Yeah, so what you have, and you see this in 11.1, so Jesus and the 12 disciples go out and they're all preaching and healing in different cities and villages at the same time. Now, let's go back and pick up one portion that we've moved very quickly over. All of this praying for the Lord of the harvest to send out workers arose out of Jesus' heart being moved with compassion for those who were sick, for the destitute, for those who were walking in sin. And he knows the message must go out calling men and women to repent, to turn from their wicked ways. His task, Jesus' task, is to come and every part of his life is to be an example for how we're to live. We are to do the same things Jesus did. So that raises the question, how do you begin to have compassion on the lost? Well, compassion usually comes as we think about something or someone. We begin to understand their condition. We begin to take responsibility for their decisions and for their actions. And we begin to try to improve their situation. Jesus knows that the improvement these people need is to repent to understand that now they are going to come under the divine authority of God in their life and they need their diseases healed. They need to be healed. So let's be very practical. So if you are recognizing you have a lack of compassion, one way is to actually go out and meet the people. So in this particular example, we know that there was healing happening, which meant a lot of people were probably sick. So Jesus felt this compassion because he was among sick people who had no cure. So likewise, let's say you want to have compassion about 
the children who are being aborted. One way to do that would be to go down to the abortion clinic and see all the women going in and begin to speak to them and encourage them to reconsider their decision and see if you can help them. That would be one way that you could start to feel compassion. Another way you could start to feel compassion on the subject of abortion would be to look up pictures of aborted children or to read, for example, about the mass grave that was just found in Pakistan of several hundred girls that had been aborted and then were buried in this mass grave. So that has to be in conjunction, however, with the word of God. So we're not trying to just stir up a humanistic compassion here, but our compassion is centered as we read through the scriptures and as we pray, we see what the Bible says about people who are in the condition that we then observe. So for example, we know that the Lord is the avenger of innocent blood. So we take that mentality in and then we go and we see parents murdering their own children and that is going to create some very strong feelings. So there's this kind of, it doesn't come out of a void is what I'm saying. So there's this kind of synergy that happens through prayer, scripture, and then actually going out and being around the people who God has a heart to save. Now, Jesus begins to warn them, and he begins to transition from what will happen to them as they're now going to go out, and he expands it into what will continue to happen after Pentecost, where men will hate you because of me. They will not appreciate you confronting them with their sin. They will not appreciate you calling them to repent for their sin. So it raises an issue that I've had to deal with very sharply in my own life. And that is the Lord saying to me, do not accommodate sin. Well, the word accommodate, I'm fascinated by because it means to offer hospitality to to make comfortable. So the word of the Lord to me is, do not make any man or woman comfortable in their sin. Do not accommodate their sin. Well, if I don't accommodate their sin, I have to confront their sin. And I have to deal faithfully with that. If I begin to confront the sin that is about me, I'm going to stir up a lot of people's very strong feelings of rage and anger. What right do I have to confront their sin? And of course, how can I be accepted and loved? How can I be the beloved pastor if I'm confronting men and women with the wickedness of their behavior? You're going to create real conflict. Now he goes on and makes these astounding statements about don't be afraid of the one who can destroy just your body. Be terrified of the one who can destroy both your soul and your body in hell. And then he talks about how much 
He cares for his disciples, how much God cares for his people, that even has their hairs on their head counted. He knows all about you. And that's would you can imagine that that would be a great encouragement as you're going out and preaching and then people are so enraged that they're trying to stone you to death. It's encouraging to know that, you know, if not even a sparrow is going to fall to the ground without God, that we know that God has our life in his hands and nobody can hurt us outside of God allowing it. And so we have confidence in God that we'll be able to do the work he's assigned us. Now, what we need to address, which is the invisible elephant in the room, we don't have power. And so what do we do? Well, I'll tell you what I've done. I've gone out in the strength I have, and I've tried to do everything possible to win the lost to Jesus. I have been spectacularly unsuccessful. And frankly, everyone else that I know has been spectacularly unsuccessful in this endeavor. We need revival. We need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We need Pentecost. We need to be recognizing that we cannot do what Jesus has commanded us to do without the power to accomplish it. He did not send his disciples out without equipping them with the power to do what he commanded them to do. Now, this was a temporary commission they would not receive their full commission until Pentecost. But at Pentecost, they received the full baptism of the Holy Spirit. And in literally one generation, the whole world has heard of this Messiah, Jesus. The story of Jesus has spread to India and to literally all the civilized world. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, so what we see here is this is like a mini preview for the disciples of what their life will be like after the day of Pentecost. The difference being that at the day of Pentecost, they were commissioned to go into the entire world. Whereas in Matthew, as we just shared, they were to stay in a specific area in Israel. So we know that when they gathered in the upper room, they had this experience to guide them to understand what to expect and how to pray. And they, we also know that they were praying Joel 2, which is why Peter preached on it. Peter didn't just have that float into his mind that that was what, has ha- that was what had happened to them, but they were actually praying the promise of Joel 2, and that's what was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in the upper room. So as we read these things, we see that this is what is supposed to be the common Christian experience. And we then compare that to our church culture in the United States, and it's not even really recognizable as the same thing. 
And so that's what Pastor Ray is saying when we talk about the elephant in the room. So I've been in Bible studies where, you know, we were like, okay, we're going to read through the book of Luke. So we read, we read through and we read all the miracles, but we treat it the way Thomas Jefferson treated the Bible. So Thomas Jefferson actually removed all the miracles from the Bible and just left the moral teachings of Jesus. And that is effectively what is being done in many Bible studies is that the miracles are just kind of being glossed over as, oh yeah, Jesus did miracles, but we can't expect to do miracles. So let's just look at, you know, what we can glean out of the moral teaching. And that's really missing the forest for the trees. I mean, the big picture here is that God wants us to walk in power. And he always intends the preaching of the gospel to be accompanied with signs. You can find this earlier in the book of Matthew. In cha same thing, chapter 9. This is in verse 5 and 6. The, if you'll recall, there was a man who was paralyzed and his friends brought him into the house. And there were some, I believe it was Pharisees, present who were accusing Jesus because Jesus was saying he could forgive sins. So Jesus says in chapter 9, verse 5, well, beginning in verse 4, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. When the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto humans." So, the purpose of the healings is to confirm the gospel. It's to confirm that Jesus Christ does indeed have the power to forgive our sins, to change us from being sinners into saints. The word forgive here can also be translated remove. So, we're not to just say, okay, well, we're going to go preach the gospel and pretend like, we can forget about the healing and healing's just optional. And this is why we, Ray and I, are crying out to God for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because if you have attempted to bring people to Jesus, you have certainly discovered this. This has been our experience. Is it's it's really my word against your word. And you know, you can be a born-again Christian standing there with just this incredible conscious presence of the of God. You feel him so strongly. You know the Holy Spirit is with you. But there's no power in what you're saying. And so you talk to this person and they're just railing against God with horrible accusations. And it doesn't matter what you say. It takes no effect. Now, that's not how God intended us to be as witnesses for him on this earth. He intended us to walk as Jesus walked. It says this in 1 John chapter 2. Did you want to turn there now or did you want to look at another passage? Well, we can turn there now. So this is 1 John chapter 2 verses 3 through 6. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. 
hereby we know that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. So from this context, it's clear we are to walk without sin. We are to keep the commandments of God. But let's keep in mind that this is the Apostle John writing, and he spent his entire Christian life walking in the power that Jesus walked in. So it's reasonable to understand walking as Jesus walked to include both his righteousness and to include the power that he gave to his disciples. If you look at Matthew, the 16th chapter, let me begin with verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. And what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. Then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Well, I see two things that you're going to say, yes, Pastor, of course, that's very simple. We all understand it, but let me say it. We deny ourselves, we take up our cross, and we follow Jesus. We call this being crucified with Christ. We call this in John 3, with Nicodemus being born from above. When we come to Jesus, we lay down all of our life, all of our expectations, hopes, dreams, money, everything we lay at the feet of Jesus. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit unto salvation. We're transformed, we're changed into new creatures. But we are not given the power to accomplish the assignment which we have been given. So there must be a second baptism. The first baptism is the water baptism to wash away our sin. The second baptism is the baptism of fire, the Holy Spirit to be equipped with power to accomplish the task. And the great problem we're faced with is that I and many other pastors in America today have done all we can do in the power of the flesh to accomplish the work of God. And we have been unsuccessful. Yes, and by flesh, you don't necessarily mean that you're not converted. I don't mean sin. Right. But you mean in what you received at conversion. And human power. Mm -hmm. Now, I hear some people say, oh, I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit. But they lack the power to accomplish the work of the gospel. Yeah, so let's just say this quickly. So the the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not primarily about my own spiritual advancement, about me having a mountaintop experience, about me being superior to other Christians. 
It's not primarily about me being able to speak in tongues. The primary purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is to make me an effective soul winner for Jesus. Now that includes the signs and the wonders, but that those are there to confirm the gospel. Yes, Jesus only gave one commission, and that was to become a fisher of men. So every person who follows Jesus Christ, who takes up their cross and is crucified with Christ, is transformed into a new creature. Their entire life work is now focused in the baptism of the Holy Spirit for the accomplishment of the work of the gospel in the world. You did not become a Christian from Scripture so that you could have a wonderful life and God would treat you like you were somebody special and he would bless you with financial blessings. That's not why you came to Jesus. Nor did you come to Jesus just so that you could give a good, live a good life and love people. It's not just about changing your character. It's that there's a work that God has commissioned us to do, which we pray in the Lord's Prayer. We pray that God's name would be upheld as holy. We pray that his kingdom would come on the earth as it is in heaven. That means that we're praying that people on the majority scale will obey God. That's what that prayer means. It's not just that I'm supposed to live a good life and love people. And then I pray for my daily bread so that I have strength for the journey. And the journey is to win the lost. It's a startling understanding, if you can begin to understand, that Jesus is still interested in sending workers out into the harvest field. For the harvest is ready. The fields are white. Many are sliding into hell every day. But without the power of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost baptism, you cannot do the work of Jesus Christ. You will be unsuccessful and unable. The Holy Spirit can do more in one day than I can do in my entire lifetime. He's looking for a person that he can come and dwell in where he can pour out his power for the salvation of the lost. So what we're praying, and we're praying this every day, is that revival will come through this radio broadcast and that as you're listening to this broadcast that you will be healed, that if you are walking in sin that you will be born again, that you will be saved. If you are a Christian that the Holy Spirit will baptize you as you hear this broadcast. So we are asking God for these signs and wonders to follow the spoken word, to empower this word on the broadcast. Do you see why we've been so bold in saying the Holy Spirit will not come to you and will not baptize you if you're walking in any known sin or rebellion? The task is not your lifetime of struggle to somehow finally deal with sin after sin until they're all gone. 
That's an instantaneous decision. I am leaving my sin. I am following Jesus Christ. You're called to die, to be crucified. This is not a long-term question. It's one that we must settle and settle quickly so that then the power of the Spirit can come and ignite your heart and equip you with all that's necessary to fulfill the gospel commission. These works have been prepared in advance for us to do. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to become a pastor. You may be working in a government office. You may be working on a farm. I don't know where you're working, but wherever that is, the power of the Spirit's going to come in Pentecost power so that your witness and your testimony will turn the hearts of many from their sin to righteousness and to follow Jesus Christ. Now, we're almost out of time, and I want to just say quickly, if your heart is crying out for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you're willing to leave your sin or you have left your sin, and you'd like to talk with us about becoming a part of a prayer group that's forming right now, you're welcome to call us. That number is 703-489-1785. Or go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. Nationalprayerchapel.com. There's a series of messages there, Alexandra. Tell us about it. Yes, so this message is, we're pretty far in now. We've been doing this for about three weeks. Part of a series called, Can Revivals Be Prayed Down? So if you go to our webpage, that's nationalprayerchapel.com, and just scroll down, you'll see that that's the featured series. I highly recommend, if you haven't heard all the messages, go to the webpage and just start at the bottom is the first message. It's called, Can Revivals Be Prayed Down? And then work your way up. It will lay the foundation for everything we've been sharing about what is revival? Can it be prayed down? Yes. Well, how do we pray? What are the conditions God needs us to meet in order to send revival? What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? How do we see it in scripture? So all those questions will be answered if you will listen to the series. I know that many of you are wandering like sheep without a shepherd. You want to follow Jesus? How do I do that? You're confused? It's time to get very serious about this gospel. Yes, and if you have questions for us, please give us a call. That phone number is on the webpage as well. You can send us an email. We're happy to hear from you. I've had a, I had a wonderful conversation this week with a radio listener, and I was very encouraged. So please don't hesitate to call us. I know what we're teaching is very out of the mainstream, but we're very happy that I feel like I can feel you all sitting on the edge of your seats as you listen to this broadcast. And we're not going to back off and back away. We're not going to compromise. We are praying in the upper room for the baptism of the Holy Spirit in power. Without this, we cannot accomplish what Jesus has sent us to this radio broadcast to accomplish. We want revival on this radio broadcast. Amen. And in each of your lives. In your life and in your church. 
we want to see revival. Lord Jesus, we come pleading your blood today, pleading that you will make plain the teaching that they have just heard, that they will not be confused by it. Lord, I ask that you would make the path very straight and very clean, and that every Christian who has only been born again, but never filled with your Spirit, and has no power for ministry, we're asking for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're asking that men and women be healed of sickness as they listen to this broadcast. We're asking that sin be confessed. We're asking that men and women would be clean before you. And we praise your name and we glorify you, Jesus. Thank you. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee. And I'm Alexandra Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. We'd love to hear from you. Contact us, nationalprayerchapel.com. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. God bless you. God bless you. We'll talk to you soon. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, with great joy, to the only God I say. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.